0: for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills, he's got two things in his hand: pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new; they yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built up bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, aka Dr. Daniel Pierce. Of U N C Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experiences of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn. Uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran <laughs> off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar wire fence. <laughs> so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Same Vault Podcast.
1: Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At polepositionmag.com, you can even find
0: past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we
1: just hit a million orders stage.
2: No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history, presented by Qware, Maintain excellence. Darrell was
1: young and, you know, had these ideas as always, the grass is always greener on the other side. I think my guys got very conservative in that last race and that hurt us no rig deal there however he did it it caused the thing to to come off we were as much shocked as everybody else the carburetor was clogged with sugar which meant somebody sabotaged our fuel tank
2: the day nascar and all of us associated in any way with nascar forget its past as the day we don't have any future Hello, I'm Steve Wade.
0: And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, we did it. We did it. We did it. We did it.
2: (laughs) We did it, buddy. What in the world are you (laughs) do? I must have missed something here.
0: No, you did not. You did not miss this at all. Here on the Scene Vault Podcast, we have had this goal all along to digitize the Scene Vault Archive First and foremost, because we have to preserve these 32 years of newspapers because something could happen to them. Sure. One good disaster could take it out. Now, obviously, I don't like to think about that, but something bad could erase all this archive, and then it wouldn't be available. So that's what we've been trying to do. Marcus Lemonis is this hugely successful entrepreneur. Most NASCAR fans would know him as the chairman and CEO of Camping World and Gander Mountain, which have sponsored the truck series for several years. And (laughs) over the past several months, I think basically when all the COVID-19 stuff started, that's when I started noticing it at any rate, he started giving away RVs. on
2: Giving away away RVs?
0: Giving away RVs. (laughs) And I'm not talking about like one a week. I'm talking about two or three a week for the last two or three months. So he's giving away some RVs. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, he tweeted out, he wanted to make sure that people had his email address if they needed any information about the RVs that he was selling. So I got his email and I emailed him. I fired off an email about the scene vault and what we were trying to accomplish and getting it digitized and what it was going to cost and what we were trying to do with it. And never heard back from it.
2: All right. All
0: right. Well, I was on the PETM Racing Podcast a couple of weeks ago with our friends, Andrew and Rusty. Of course, they asked about where things stood with getting it digitized. And I mentioned my email to Marcus. And they said, well, you know, we ought to just fire off a tweet. And so the next morning, they fired off a tweet to Marcus Limonis. All right. Never heard back from him. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So I imagine Marcus gets a lot of that kind of stuff. That's the thing. I can't even begin to imagine the requests and that he gets all the time. But last Wednesday, it was hot that morning and I didn't feel like running and I wasn't very motivated. I laid in bed that morning trying to convince myself to get out of bed and drove to where I usually start from and was sitting in my car and I was just procrastinating. Yeah, because I was dreading getting out and going to run that morning. And so there I am in my car, and before I get out to start running and walking, I tweeted Marcus. I said, well, you know, what the heck? I'll I'll just give it one last shot. I'll never hear from him. He's got so many people wanting a piece of his time, wanting some money, wanting an RV, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I tweeted him, and I said, I'm trying to get to 5,000 lifetime miles on the app that I use. I don't want to do this. It's warm. The warm weather really zaps me. So I said, how about this? I need some motivation. Why don't you meet me at the 5,000 mile mark with an offer to digitize all 32 years of scene? Kind of bold there, weren't you? No. (laughs) Hey, well, you know me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do.
0: I expected absolutely nothing out of it. I tweeted one of my before pictures from when I was heavier I tweeted my mileage at the time, which was forty six hundred and something miles, and I also tweeted a picture of the scene vault archive, the papers, and everything. And again, I expected nothing out of it. But later that night, probably I don't know, it was probably 10 o'clock, right before I went to bed. He tweeted back and said, "Explain to me what I need to know, basically." So he wanted to really? know more about it.
2: Right. Okay. And so,
0: I mean, my hands were shaking as I tweeted him back and told him what the scene vault was and about Winston Cup scene's role in recording NASCAR history. And, Steve, the truly, truly, truly amazing thing was everybody else's reaction. When they saw Marcus Limonis respond to me, wanting to know more about Winston Cup scene and what we were trying to accomplish, People came out of the woodworks, and they were tweeting about what Winston Cup scene meant. Brad Keselowski tweeted about what Winston Cup scene meant. He actually tweeted and said that his first win at Talladega did not seem real until he saw it on the cover of the next week's NASCAR scene. How about that? Now, how cool is that?
2: That is great.
0: So the next morning, this would have been Thursday morning now, Got up, and that was as close to being involved in something going viral as anything that we've done yeah. because people were tweeting about it. And eventually, I think it was probably around 11 o'clock, Marcus Lemonis tweeted back and said, you've got a deal. I really? Couldn't. Done deal. <laughs> and I,
2: Golly, that's he great.
0: Said, he said, you've got a deal because you're setting goals and you're crushing them. That was a watershed moment for us because this is something that you and I have been working towards oh, yeah. for more than two years now. And Absolutely. that was all well and good. But then a couple of hours later, the reaction was still coming fast and furious. And he tweets me back just out of the blue and says, Let's get this done by the date of the last race of the year,
2: which is
0: November 8th, <laughs> which cuts nearly two full months off my timeline
2: well that's not what you had in mind but you still that's not think.
0: what i had in mind no, no. and that's well. not the original deal that we agreed to but i wasn't going to point that out to him <laughs> <laughs> well, now, how i was going to say yes sir <laughs> how many miles short are you a five thousand? right now as of this morning i am 338.71 miles short
2: really now, let me figure this out.
0: I have basically 22 weeks. I've already done the math. All right?
2: Okay. So I'm going to need to
0: average just a little less than 16 miles a week.
2: 16 miles a
0: week. Over, and I had been, in order to get to 5,000 by the end of the year, I had been needing to average about 11.6 or 7. Uh huh.
2: Okay? Now it's 16.
0: So now it's 16. The way that I'm looking at it is I need to step it up about half a mile more a day. Okay. All right. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do three miles a day. So for the week, I'm going to do about 18 miles, a little more than 18 miles. So I'll try to build a little bit of a cushion. And if there's a day that I don't quite make three miles, I'll still be above my average. So that's been kind of tough, especially with the hotter weather. Because in all seriousness, the hot weather really does, I mean, yeah, it really drains me
2: pretty quick. I understand that. So we're, not, we're talking about 18 miles over, you're calling for six days, right? Yeah, yeah. 18 miles in six days. I can't even drive 18 miles in six days without <laughs> getting tired. Yeah. Well, good luck, Rick. Now, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but think of all
0: the people (laughs) who are counting on you now, Rick. (laughs) And, Steve, you know what? That's cool because it does give me motivation. Absolutely. It gives me a reason to keep pressing forward. Did you ever think, when we worked together at scene, did you ever think that I would be involved in anything like this? I was running to the Chinese buffet. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. No, I never thought it would come to this, but I will say this Rick, when you set a goal, you work for it very, very hard. You always have. I'm going to tell a little story on you right here that oh, indicates dear. how much you're dedicated to reaching your goals. See, several years ago, you came up with the notion that you wanted to own every issue of scene, and to do that, You did have to spend some money. Now, I came to you and said, look, Rick, I got an idea. My daughter is in Raleigh in college, and she's coming home for the summer. And she has got this sculpture that she's done. Epsilon (laughs) Epsilon the Dragon (laughs) in her design class. I want you to take your car, go to Raleigh, pick up her statue, and bring it on back to Charlotte. And for that, I'll pay you X amount of dollars and I'll give you your lunch money and I'll give you your gas money. Guess who did everything I asked him to do and brought everything back? You did to get that extra money that you turned around and spent on acquiring old issues of scene. That (laughs) is determination.
0: Well, you mentioned lunch money, so I was in. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that. I don't want it if I gave you too little. (laughs) Hey, when you said lunch money, you lost money on that deal. (laughs) 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 Steve, this week, we're going to share the second installment of our interview with Bill Gardner. And this week, he talks about the disappointment of losing out on the 1979 Winston Cup championship, the on-again, off-again relationship with Buddy Parrott, and ultimately... Daryl Walter's departure from Guard. Then we talked about Ricky Rudd and Bobby Allison, and then them finally getting to the top of the mountain and winning the nineteen eighty three Winston Cup Championship. And sugar in the tank, yeah. at Riverside.
2: Ha <laughs> That was not a sweet deal at all. Ha <laughs> ha!
0: Oh, how long did you work on that one?
2: <laughs> Obviously not long enough. <laughs>
0: And Steve, then in our second segment, we go back to the November 19th, 1981 Grand National Scene. And Steve, I got into this issue just looking for a die guard story to kind of connect it to the interview with Bill. And this issue doesn't cover the 1979 Daytona 500. It doesn't cover Dale Earnhardt's 1998 Daytona 500 win. It's not the 1992 Hooters 500 in Atlanta, but still... An issue like this is exactly why we have worked so hard to get the Sane Vault archive digitized and preserved. This issue is just 28 pages, but there is amazing content on just about every single page. Bobby Allison signed to drive with Dieguard, which left Ricky Rudd in kind of big-time limbo. Neil Bonnet won at Atlanta in front of Ford officials on the same weekend as Ford announced its return to the sport. And, Steve, there were features on James Hilton, Jr., Tweety. Tweety, that's right. Yeah, Tweety. And also, Dale Earnhardt, Sr., leaving RCR, Richard Childress Racing, to go drive for Bud Moore. And, Steve, there is so much more in this issue. It's absolutely Incredible. Well,
2: that was the job that they had back then in the Grand National Scene. I mean, we had to cover the news because no one else was doing it. And we were very busy, as this issue clearly
0: illustrates. And, Steve, this week, if people could possibly help support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast, or if they could help support us on a one-time basis on PayPal, they can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. So support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, our title sponsorship, support Brian Kelb, who has been with us for quite some time now, and all the amazing apparel that he has. Help us out because those who have supported us have helped us get to the point where we can make this deal with Marcus Lamonis, and he can come in and he can help us get the scene vault digitized he can help us make this website possible so this is what we've been working for ever since we started this project steve and the support that we've gotten on paypal the support that we've gotten on patreon and from qware and from brian kelb and from so many other sources just the encouragement if it's not been financial support it's been encouragement to keep us going and help us get to this point so Steve, I can't even tell people how much I appreciate everything that they've done for us. No, I can't either.
2: I just want to say that folks uh, hang in there with us because we see a light at the horizon and you want to be there with us. Well, despite... Well, you've already told us about, you know, Daryl and your relationship with him at that particular time. And despite everything that had taken place, say, in 78, you go into 79 and uh, you win seven races. First of all, how was the team able to set aside whatever differences they had and be in contention for the championship? I I tested your leadership. I mean, that's pretty good, if you ask me.
1: (laughs) Well, if you get the right people, you have to have qualified people, in any business. I don't care what it is, whether it's in your industry or mine or whatever. And we have the talent. It was a matter of, of, of getting that talent to, to, pull, the cord, to pull the cart in, in one direction. And that's not an easy thing. You know, people have that, especially in, in racing with attitudes and, and things that each individual has. We yeah. managed to do that. And, and put the team. And I can recall, you know, we lost the thing, I think, by the shortest margin in history of NASCAR. I think it was 11 points or something. We lost the championship to Richard. And it was interesting because afterwards, I had actually planned a big party in Las Vegas for us to fly back and, and party. And uh, the, um, what happened was um, we, were, we were having a meeting about you know why we lost the race and robert yates told me ah. that he he made a decision to use a different rear end ratio being conservative not below the engine and so what it really showed was instead of us just going all out which petty was doing he, you know he had nothing to lose he already had six champion whatever championships yeah and I think my guys got very conservative in that last race. They wanted to make sure that they didn't fall out and everything else. And I think that from a horsepower standpoint, and that hurt us. And it was a lesson for us to learn that, you know, you, you got to let it all hang out. So it was, it, was, it was tough to take, I'll be honest, from everyone's perspective. Uh, but it didn't happen.
0: After that race in 1979, you parted ways with Buddy Parrott. And then right before the start of the 1980 season, you rehired Buddy. And then about halfway through the 1980 season, you parted ways with him again. What was that situation like from your perspective? Most of that all came from Darrell Waltrip. <laughs> Darrell
1: okay. Waltrip, Waltrip was behind him working and him not working. And obviously, the driver has a lot to say about his crew. And I would say that, that that whole situation of in and out, and in and out related back to Daryl and his personality and who he could work with and he couldn't.
2: <laughs> well, you talked about the the disappointment of seventy-nine and how you guys you analyzed how you guys lost it. So what was your outlook outlook going into nineteen eighty?
1: Well let's pull up your bootstraps. We found out that we were too conservative. We should have we shouldn't have we should have won the race.
2: Yeah.
1: We had we had the capabilities and had we not been had we not been so you know, Petty Petty was going for his you know it was a nothing deal to him in, in respect to it wasn't his first. This was our first, both the team and the driver. And I would say that that what we learned from that is not 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 to be so conservative at, at as we were, because we all felt it was a shame. We all looked at each other, and, you know, between between the driver and Daryl and, and and my brother and myself and Yates, and you know, we we just couldn't couldn't believe that that we we just didn't close 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 out the deal and. But that that's good because sometimes that that makes you stronger, you know. You you you, you know. Then then you, you 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 take more risks the next time. Right.
0: At that time, two car teams were not the norm, and going into the nineteen eighty season, there was evidently word that you were planning to run Don Whittington in a second car, and Darrell was not happy about that. How did that situation eventually get resolved?
1: Well, I I explained to, to Daryl that what Whittington did is Whittington came up to my brother and 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 first I think they bought they bought they bought engines or they 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 were buying stuff off of us and I really wasn't involved in any of that and but then he he wanted to run a few races and was willing to pay these enormous sums of money. And, you know, I, 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 I kind of told my brother, I said, you know, you guys make the decision as to whether, if, if this affects our main team in any way, then don't do it. You know, it's not the end of the world. And they came to the conclusion that that it was just a, a situation where, I think it was only, only a racer, I forget the deal, but it wasn't any long-term thing. It was strictly, he was buying a ride basically for one race or whatever it was. And, and my team got together and decided, because most of the decisions we made, we made informally. uh, you you get a, you run a business better when you allow your people to express their opinions and, and blend together. But that, that situation was never a competitive thing against Darrell or, uh, or, or was it even discussed? To my knowledge, it was kind of like a one-off. Uh, no, no different than Yates was you know, selling engines and and had engines and half the half the race cars that people didn't know. But it was unusual for us to build another car. We did build cars for A.J. Point and Rutherford back in the early days uh, at Daytona, which didn't turn out to be. That was part of my learning curve. Uh, that that was not a good deal, but uh, that
0: that Whittington deal was a was a was a, was a, was a, a, a nothing burger, <laughs> however you want to put it. Yeah, Darrell had tried to get out of his contract in 1978 and go drive for Harry Rainier. In 1980, he gets an offer from Junior Johnson. You had the whole situation with Buddy Perry. You had some turnover in the team was there ever a point where you said, "Okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm closing up shop. I'm going back to Connecticut." <laughs> what ultimately kept you around?
1: Well, first of all,
0: Daryl was young
1: <laughs> and, and, and and you know had these ideas as always the grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, Harry Reir come along and threw out, and then when I talked to Harry, I said, "Harry, you do realize." that you cannot talk to my race driver <laughs> and I had the same conversation with junior. And I said, because you, you're going to have a problem legally with me. And they got it because they were, well, not so much junior, but junior got it. Whether his lawyers told him or what. And they and of course they pulled, they pulled out totally. They had to, or I would assume, but Darrell was, I forget the first date you gave, but he was unhappy and, and, and so we'd go through his contract and say, you know, what is it that you're unhappy with? And, and a lot of times it was ridiculous. And, and as you note, if you went back through the records and the thing, you found that he continued to drive for us, you know, and he, he just was showing every, every year he had a whole new deal, you know. And, and after a while, I, I just took it as, as a, a bump, just a bump in the road. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side situation well, until, how could it, until the how finally could it, Until he decided he wanted to
0: move. How could the grass get any greener than driving a Gatorade car? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I mean, let's face it. I mean, when he and his his father in law came to Connecticut, I you know was told me that his father in law, who was backing him, you know, was not in a position to do it anymore because of the public company. He couldn't couldn't sponsor and uh daryl you know had, had run up some, some bills and and uh he really needed a deal and you know but all new drivers run across that i mean and he obviously was talented and I, i'm i was very happy and i, I said that an incident that happened with my brother pulling into a gas station off the highway uh-huh. going to florida connecticut twice was fortuitous it just just mind boggling to this day. And that, and that really set wheels in motion that I felt there was higher <laughs> higher, higher yeah. action going on in this deal. But
2: you know well, finally in 1980, Dale did get out of his contract and did go drive for Junior. Now yeah. we've all heard different stories about how that happened. Tell us how it happened.
1: How how he left?
2: Yeah, how he got out of that contract. What did what did he
1: well, have to, we we, we, sure. we, we, we he just thought he could walk. He he just didn't understand that there, that that the contract called he would have to buy his contract out. Right. And and, and he didn't quite understand all the, the nuances with respect to that. Three does. <laughs> but you know, Gatorade had spent a whole bunch of money. You know, as I said earlier in the conversation, with 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 getting ready for the next year. And what I wanted, what I wanted, was a financial settlement. If I was going to let him go, I needed a financial settlement, a fair one out of him, that made, you know, these obligations that were set forth for next the following year, is absorbed by him. It, it just was not a fair deal. So that's all it was to that. Right. So we did that, and I let let him go.
0: Ricky Rudd lasted one year as your driver, 1981. Was that because he wasn't able to quite break into victory lane, or was that because Bobby Allison became available for the 82 season?
1: Both. Uh, (laughs) I I think the team was so used to being very highly competitive with Daryl. And with Ricky, you know, we, we, we gave him the best equipment. And, again, he was in his learning stages. And I had to make a decision, uh, Bobby, Bobby made himself available to us. And when you measured up the two sides, it didn't take me long to, to figure out um, that, that we should do that. But I, wanna, I went a step further. Um, <clears throat> we, we, uh, we were also being approached by Miller, with the largest sponsorship in auto racing at the time. And I was under a long-term contract with Gatorade. And I also was best friends with the chairman and Bill Stokely told me, I told him the deal and I had two years left in the contract. And he said, Bill, take it. It's, it's, they're much, they have much more marketing dollars to spend in the sport than we do, you know? Um, and I said, well, here's the quid pro quo. Why don't I help you, uh, with respect to Ricky Rudd and, and, uh, we helped. I forget. It's a long time ago, so I can't remember everything. But we we put our effort behind that situation so that Bill Stokely and Gatorade um, would would be as competitive as they could. Uh, so we were we were trying to move on ourselves by having the availability of a superstar driver like Bobby, and uh, and yet not not injuring you know, the the young fellow. He didn't quite take it that way, I don't think, but he, I don't even think that his day he knew what, 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 what I had done behind the scenes for his benefit, but so be it, you know.
0: Okay, 1982, Daytona 500. There was a rumor, a myth, a legend, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and from your reaction, you know what I'm going to ask. The bumper <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. that Bobby's <laughs> rear bumper was somehow rigged to come off. Now, what did happen was
1: Kelly hit the back of our car, and it wasn't, it, it was, there was no no rigged deal there. <laughs> However, he hit it and bumped us, it it, it, it caused the thing to, to come off. We were as much shocked as everybody else, uh, but there was no games there. There was no, I mean, you, we would never do that because that would injure somebody. If that bumper came off, you know, intentionally to to gain weight, you know, situation. No, we, we, we didn't do that. That was actually, you know, just an incident that was caused and, and it may have given us an advantage, you know, weight wise or whatever. I also could have done other things.
0: 1982, 1983. The championship comes down to Daryl Waltrip and to Bobby Allison. Given your past relationship with Daryl, what was it like to watch all that going on?
1: Well, I like competition, so <laughs> Junior and him were formative, and 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 we believed we were formative as well. Uh, you know, we went from the big three to where we were nothing, to now we're down to two teams that were winning everything. And that of course was my goal. And then ultimately to be on top. And um it was, was was it was what you look for. If you're in a sport and you want to win and you want to be against the best, going against junior and Darrell was was formative. <laughs> and uh we felt we had just as much chance and we did as as they did, and uh we gave it our best shot and came up short.
0: Nineteen eighty three. Bobby took the lead in the standings after the spring Dover race, and he was out front for the rest of the year. And it's the first championship not only for Bobby, but also for Dygard. What did that mean to you after everything that had transpired with your team and all the controversies that you'd been through? What did it mean to you to be on top? Oh, it's
1: just a high, incredible high, because you, you, you work so hard to put – put together something and, and have it reach the pinnacle, and we had come close so many times. I mean, 79, you know, 80, 82, uh, you know, we could have won, we could have had three championships. Uh, they were that close, and I wouldn't be sitting with one championship, but the records show that we were very, very close, but to, to win the championship was was the goal that we set out from the beginning. And I was just glad to to uh, share that with our entire team who worked very hard, and uh, you know, with my brother and and Robert Yates who who we go back a long way. Uh, it's just fabulous individuals, and 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 Gary Nelson was was just fabulous, and putting putting the three of them with 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 Bobby together was was. It was good. Was fabulous. It was a big high. I was. I was. I was very high.
2: There was a story that circulated that at Riverside, there was some kind of uh, sugar residue found in the fuel cell of the car. Now, what was your reaction to that?
1: Well, I guess I can say now. Yeah. Uh, I. I, uh, I was in. I was in the uh, hotel in in, uh, in New York with my wife for the for the awards thing and I got a call from Bill French jr and uh, m- the car had gotten back to Charlotte and I had got a call from my brother and from Robert and from Gary that they they knew there was a problem with the car and they and they obviously saw it was all clogged up the, the carburetor was clogged with sugar which meant somebody sabotaged our fuel tanks that were supposedly guarded by Union Oil and NASCAR at the time. Mm -hmm. We luckily won, we could have, when we were discussing it, it was a good thing that we put one gas tank into the car instead of the other. Because if we had put the other one in, we probably wouldn't have finished the race. Uh, So Bill called me up and and, uh, he said he sent his crew up to Charlotte. to look at the, 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 the situation. And uh, he asked me if I would please not, you know, make this a big thing at the, at the awards thing. And I agreed, I said, it's not, you know, it's yesterday's news, but it's something we have to deal with because how, you know, we could have easily lost that, lost, you know, the points, the number of points. And the interesting part of it was, I said to Bill French Jr. I said, Billy, what if my car put the other tank in, and my car didn't make enough laps to come in first? Would what would you have done? Award the championship to to Daryl? And he said, Yeah. Wow. And I almost fell over. Mm. And I said to Billy, I said, you know, that's kind of uh, kind of strange. I said. Uh, he said, well, we have to go by the rules, Bill, uh, you know, I said, well, then, you know, we obviously have to find out what happened and try to correct this. So it never happens again. But we were sabotaged, but luckily, oh. luckily we, we had enough regular fuel to get around the racetrack, the number of laps to complete, but it, it was a mess, but we kept it under wraps because we felt that it wasn't in the best interest of the sport. Um, and that i was given i was given you know bill jr told me that he would do everything in his power to make sure that that the controls over that type of situation in the future would be would be much stricter and controlled but it right. did happen that's the that's the real take
0: <laughs> the obvious question is this what do you think happened how do you think that sugar got in there
1: no i, I we, we we couldn't figure out I mean, I had that discussion with Bill, Bill Jr. And, and my guys. I said, "Who would do this? Who had access to the Union 76 tanks? Who who who? How does this all work?" I mean, you know, obviously NASCAR takes the tanks and, and, and has the responsibility of it. So the responsibility fell on NASCAR to watch it. Somebody put sugar in our tanks, so they didn't want us to win. Was it was it some worker bee? I, I, We never found the answer out and and probably we'll never find the answer out. Uh, And we weren't accusing anyone. So, but my concern was, was that, that, that NASCAR would take up a much stricter stand on the control over things like that. If they're going to take those controls away from us, you know, a car owner team,
0: it's pretty ugly. And it could have got worse. If you'd Absolutely. had that other tank in the car.
1: if we Yeah, and we talked about it, our guys. We said if
0: if, if you had
1: chosen, you know, that out of the two tanks to fill this one first, we may not have made it around the racetrack.
0: We would have clogged up the carburetor. So this was a situation where it was in two tanks. Is that no. what I'm – No, the one must have been clean
1: because okay. we managed to finish the race. It wasn't yeah. until we put the second tank in that we started to sputter and – and all kinds of things were happening near the end of the race <laughs> and, and, and you guys couldn't figure it out What? what bobby talking to the to, to yates and, you know what's going on with this car and but it was near the end of the race so we were able to wherever we finished wasn't very high uh enabled us to still win the championship i think we came in eighth i think or something but we had a much better car than that but the eighth gave us the win for the championship and and quite frankly we i honored my my deal with bill french junior to so leave it leave it where it is and they put in much stronger controls today and you know different yeah. different world but it did happen
0: Hello Scene Vault podcast listeners, this is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it. And we hope that you get a chance to check us out at qwarecmms.com. Qware is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facilities maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. qwarecmms.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at Qware, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. So Steve, somehow, some way, guard Racing somehow manages to get through the 1978 Winston Cup season when Daryl Waltrip is all but headed out the door to go drive for Harry Rainier. We actually had a headline in Grand National Scene that read, "It's a done deal that Daryl was going to drive for Harry in 1979." But <laughs> Bill Gardner says, "Now, just wait a minute." <laughs> Not so fast. We've got this contract here. <laughs> and this contract says otherwise. Now, somehow, Steve, somehow they get past what I'm sure was not a little bit of animosity between the two. And they go into the season and they have this amazing year right up to Talladega when they're leading in the standings by 229 points over Richard Petty. Now, Steve, what do you think allowed them to set aside all that junk Well, to be able to be as competitive as they were early in 1979?
2: Well, I think it's a combination of talent and determination. And what they did was, in my opinion, was say, okay, we got these things going on and a little bit of animosity, but we started out the season pretty good and we got something going here. Let's please put this all aside and see what we can do in 1979. So I think the combination of the obviously, the talent that was on that team, both behind the wheel and in the preparation for the car, all that talent and determination combined to have them poised to win a championship, which is exactly what they wanted to do.
0: Well, Steve, we do know that over the last 10 races or so of the year, that lead slowly but surely dwindled to the point where there was just two points separating Darryl Waltrip and Richie Petty going into the season finale at Ontario. Darryl Waltrip has problems in the season finale and finishes eighth, which cost him the title by just 11 points. And at yeah. that time, that was the smallest margin ever. I don't know how much consolation that was. <laughs> <laughs> But the gloves maybe came off just a little bit. And when we talked to Buddy Parrott, he was feeling like he was kind of made out to be the scapegoat. And there were rumors that he had somehow thrown the championship. to, give yeah. it to So I, I don't know what went on, but Buddy wound up getting fired right after the season finale. And then he was rehired right before the start of the next season in 1980. But then... He was fired midway through the 1980 season. And when I talked to him for the podcast, and certainly in the next week's issue of Grand National Scene, Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. He sounded just a little bit relieved. When we asked Bill Gardner about that situation, he basically said that it was Daryl Waltrip's call. So, Steve, what do you remember about that
2: whole scene? I remember that was very odd. I mean, being fired at the end of the season was not a great, Big surprise because they set a goal of winning a championship, fell very, very short of that goal, and I think there were some hard feelings after that. And Buddy may be right. I mean, he may well have been the scapegoat. Now think about this: if he was considered the scapegoat at the time, as the next season approached, they probably realized that they weren't going to get anybody better at that particular time, and said, okay. We may have made a mistake by calling him the scapegoat. Let's bring him back because we know what he can do, I think.
0: The end result was Buddy left the team right in 1980. In 1980, Darrell Waltrip gets this offer to drive for Junior Johnson. Before Dieguard and Bill Gardner came along, drivers changing teams was a relatively simple matter, from what I understand. That driver got what he considered to be a better deal, and then that driver went to his current team owner and said that he wanted to move on. And Steve, even though there might have been some hard feelings, there were quite often hard feelings, but eventually the driver and the team owner parted away so the driver could take the new deal. And that's well, the, the way it seemed.
2: That way, it was that way, pretty much. And the team owner's reaction to the driver wanted to leave was usually, I don't want anybody here who doesn't want to be here.
0: Exactly. So, exactly. You leave. You go ahead. That was the old school NASCAR way of doing things. Now, Bill Gardner didn't have that kind of background. He was a businessman who went by the letter of the law and the contract, and these were ironclad contracts the likes of which NASCAR had rarely, if ever, seen before. And when we talked to Daryl, he said that he had just signed a three-year contract. And (laughs) so that meant that Daryl was going to drive for Dieguard for the next three seasons. Right. According to Bill Gardner, that was it.
2: That's it. And Bill was not about to let him have that contract, not free anyway.
0: That was the way that it was going to be. To Bill's credit, he did explain that, Because of this contract being in place, Gatorade had proceeded to create advertising. They put all this effort into Daryl driving for him in 1981 and would have anyway. Bill said that was his way to maybe compensate Gatorade. He said that he didn't make any money off the deal.
2: Well, the fact that he had a contract with Daryl probably was a good reason for Gatorade to spend some money and promote heavily Daryl's image in the car's image and everything like that, because that contract offered them assurances that Daryl would be with the team. And therefore they felt comfortable spending the money. Had it been a handshake deal. I'm not sure that Gatorade would have done what it wanted to do.
0: So if he was going to get out of that contract, it was going to cost Daryl and it did. Cost Daryl. Oh yes. <laughs> According to him, it cost him three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars.
2: That was a lot. Well, that's a lot of money. Anytime I was going to say that, that was that's pretty a lot steep. of money.
0: That was pretty steep. Steve, what kind of ripples did that send through the garage when that contract had to be bought out? Was that a turning point for the way that business was conducted?
2: I think so, because more and more after that particular time. Team driver associations were spelled out with a contract. And remarkably, it is always, nearly always, a three-year contract. Now, every contract is different. And I'm sure that some had options here and there for the team and the driver to split. But a three-year deal is based upon the principle that it would take a team three years to become championship caliber. That's what they thought at that time.
0: So in 1981, Ricky Rudd comes to drive for die guard. And at the end of the year, Bobby Allison comes along and they have an opportunity with him. So that leaves kind of Ricky Rudd in the lurch and they don't know what they're going to do with him. And he's kind of on the hook. So that has to be ironed out. Now we're going to talk about that in our second segment when we go through the issue of the week. But but then I asked Bill Gardner about the 19... 82 Daytona 500. And Steve, as soon as the words started to come out of my mouth and Bill realized what I was going to ask him about, his face broke into this grin. (laughs) And so he knew what was coming.
2: Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) But according to Bill, he said that the bumper was not rigged to come off and that they were just as shocked as anybody when it came off. And so I, I, Steve, I don't know. I'm just going to go with a firm no comment on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: 1982 and
0: 1983, the championship comes down to Daryl and Bobby. And certainly that would have been an interesting dynamic with DW's past relationship with Diegard and everything that had taken place between the two of them because of everything that happened do you think that they wanted to beat each other maybe just even a little bit more than they would have if they had been going up against somebody else like Neil Bonnet or whoever?
2: Well, no, (laughs) I think definitely they they wanted to win a little bit more against each other. And why not? I mean, it was a rivalry that was made up by circumstances that went on. And so when that happened and they went elsewhere and Bobby came in, of course. It was gonna be a rivalry.
0: Well, you had the existing rivalry between Daryl and Bobby, which was one thing, but then you had the issues that had taken place between Daryl and Digard, So this was yeah, it must have been pretty fun to be around the sport that time and see what all was going on every week.
2: Daryl Daryl wanted to show Got Diegard. he made the right move. Yeah. And Bobby was with Dyguard and he won the show, yeah, Dyguard can win championship and we can beat you.
0: Finally, Bobby does win the championship in 1983, but even then, it's not without controversy. At Riverside, the last race of the year, there is sugar residue found in the fuel cell of the car that Bobby drove there. First of all, what do you think happened?
2: Well, I don't exactly know, and I probably never will exactly know, but no mistake about it, there was sugar in the fuel cell. That is a fact. Yeah. So clearly, somebody tried to sabotage Bobby's car.
0: Everybody laughs and says it was Daryl. Obviously, it wasn't Daryl. No. I would like to think that it was just an overzealous fan. Now, what kind of access a fan would have to the car, Right. I, I don't know. But uh, that's what I would like to believe. There was anybody directly involved.
2: Yeah, nobody in the garage area.
0: Right, correct. Yeah,
2: I I sort of agree with you on that. I can't imagine anybody trying to do that to another competitor.
0: That's what we think might have happened. Second of all, the thing that I find so intriguing is this. There wasn't really that big a flap about it. Today, something like that would break the internet. But back then, it was like, yeah, it happened. But there just didn't seem to be a lot of talk about it. Am I missing something there?
2: No, I don't remember being a huge controversy for Matt. I think there was one particular reason for it. Imagine this. If Bobby had lost the championship in that race because of the sugar, now you're talking major controversy.
0: Oh, yeah. If he had lost that championship, that would have been. Yeah.
2: So the thinking was he had won the championship, and I don't think anybody really wanted to make a big deal out of it because he won that championship.
0: Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.etsy.com. Steve, this week, I didn't know it existed, but Brian actually posted a Larry McReynolds and Robert Yates t-shirt. I have never seen. (laughs) I want a Larry Mack t-shirt. That's all there is to it. I got to have a Larry McReynolds t-shirt.
2: That's all there is to it is right. I've never (laughs) seen that. Wow.
0: He also posted a couple of Bill Elliott t-shirts and a Mark Martin t-shirt. The Folgers number six, Roush racing car. I love that paint scheme.
2: Yes, sir. Good car.
0: And then also, Steve, he posted a Winston Cup scene (laughs) (laughs) Uh, t-shirt. Those I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) We were knee-deep in Winston Cup Seating t-shirts at one time, weren't we? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens, and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the November 19th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene, on page three of that issue, there was a story announcing the fact that Bobby Allison had signed a three-year contract with Diegarten, another one of those three-year deals. That's right. (laughs) And, Steve, that was great for Bobby, but Ricky Rudd had driven for the team in 1981, and he was kind of left in limbo.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a tough situation for him at the time.
0: You and Gene Granger teamed up on this story, and it said that DieGuard was interested in either fielding a second car for Ricky with Gatorade sponsorship or maybe even obtaining part ownership in another team and moving Ricky and Gatorade over there. Now, reports were that DieGuard was offering other teams Ricky's contract and a possible Gatorade sponsorship for a price.
2: Of course, there's something <laughs>
0: involved. So they were kind of shopping that around. Now, one option the story mentioned was the Bob Rogers team that Larry McReynolds was working for at the time that you can buy a T-shirt of now, evidently, Larry McReynolds yeah. T-shirt. So, yeah. <laughs> And that was a team where Larry McReynolds had been working and Tim Richmond was the driver at the time. And Dana Williamson, who was Bob Rogers' daughter, who also served as the team manager, she said the only talks that have taken place are about a possible sponsor for next year. We would pursue whichever sponsor, Hardee's or Gatorade, was cut loose. But as for buying Ricky's contract, I don't think we are really interested in anything like that. Now, Gene wrote a column in the next issue. That mentioned the fact that Diegard could have exercised seven, seven option years. Well,
2: that's hard <laughs> to fathom. But knowing Bill Gardner and the way he did business, I'm not totally surprised.
0: The guy could write a contract, okay? Absolutely. And you stick if, to it. if you were going to sign that contract, I believe I would have read the fine print. <laughs> <laughs> But Ricky did say in your story, I'm really in the dark. I knew that they pretty much had worked things out with Bobby and that the contract was just waiting to be signed. My contract with Die means that they can pretty much do with me whatever they decided to do. I knew it was pretty one-sided when I signed it, but I thought they just wanted to go racing. I didn't expect to get this runaround. The story listed a handful of options that Ricky had. Ricky wanted to get released by DieGuard, so he could go drive for another team. Or he could accept another ride arranged by DieGuard, whether it was in a second car or with another team with DieGuard co-ownership or through a contract purchase. Or, Steve, and this was the worst-case scenario, yeah. he could quit driving and accept a possible legal challenge. That was the option that Ricky actually preferred if it meant still having anything to do with driving for DieGuard.
2: Yeah, I agree. He had that option, but I think the first option is the true one. Ricky wanted to leave DieGuard.
0: And Steve, when you and I talked to Bill, he did talk about Ricky and said that he was doing things behind the scenes to help him out. So I don't know whose side listeners may come down on, but regardless, it did seem to be a pretty difficult situation for Ricky with seven option years. That yeah, was that, the thing that got my attention.
2: I agree. And I think that was the catalyst that made Ricky want to leave the team. But there was something else. It was at this time that Dale Earnhardt ended his relationship with Oslin, you know, and went and drove for Richard Schulz for about yeah. 11 races in 1981. When that season was over, Richard admitted to me that he didn't have the material to give Dale a winning car at this point. So that's when Dale moved over to Budmore with Wrangler Sponsorship. Now, Richard is looking for a driver for his team. He knows that Ricky Rudd is free, but he doesn't have a sponsor. Here comes Piedmont Airlines, based in Winston-Salem. Now, you know who else is based in Winston-Salem? R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. Yes, sir. I firmly believe they had a hand and bringing Piedmont to Childress so Childress could continue racing. And the natural candidate was the guy that wanted to leave that Ricky Rudd, and that's where he went.
0: And that's where Ricky Rudd won his first race at RCR. And that was also RCR's first win. That's right. There's that relationship with Ricky Rudd and RCR that we don't think of a whole lot because of what Dale Earnhardt came along and eventually accomplished in that car. But I really think that ricky's relationship with rcr is what started to put them on the map
2: yeah richard told me that without ricky rudd and without piedmont he might well have been at the end of the line
0: steve neil bonnet won the atlanta journal 500 in atlanta the weekend before and he wound up leading 14 times for a total of 200 of the race's 328 laps Neil said in your race lead, I don't know how much of a fuse this car had on it, (laughs) but I think I might have used up all of it. I had plenty of car left at the end, but I flat pushed it all the way. I wore it out. Now, there actually seemed to be some truth in that because with three or four laps to go, a tire started going flat. Yeah, I remember that. Which is never good news for the leader. (laughs) (laughs) But guess what? He was able to nurse it to the end, and Neil did win this race. And he was on the cover of the next week's Grand National Scene with his mama and daddy and his daughter and wife, Susan. So that was pretty cool. Neil said in your race lead, I noticed the car was a bit loose going in the corners. I also smelled smoke, but I didn't realize it was the tire, which went flat in victory circle. (laughs) I guess if you're going to have a flat tire, that's the place to go flat, Absolutely. is in Victory Circle.
2: We know that they've run out of gas on the way to Victory Circle. That <laughs> happened, too.
0: Steve Neal was driving a Wood Brothers Racing Ford in front of Edsel B. Ford II and a host of Ford executives. Ford had announced that weekend that it was coming back to the sport after an 11-year absence.
2: Now, what a perfect scenario. Ford announces it's a return to NASCAR, Ford executives are at the race, which is won by a Ford. Not just a Ford, but a Wood Brothers racing Ford. What a perfect scenario.
0: Steve, who won yesterday's race in Atlanta? Kevin Harvey. What kind of car was he driving? Go ahead. A Ford. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it was cool what Edsel Ford the second had to say. I can't say we are coming back like we did before. We don't have the budget. I do want to offer my personal thanks to the teams who have been running Ford products without our backing. We have been behind them, even though we were not at the tracks. Now, obviously, you had the Wood Brothers, and you also had Bud Moore, who had been running Ford. So Bud Moore said in this issue, anything we can get will be a blessing. We need anything we can get. Junie Don Levy has one engine block. Bud was building Junie's engines at the time. So right. Junie Levy has one engine block. I know because I have it. I have one block. I don't know how many Leonard Wood has. Steve, in the closing stages of this race, Neil had a pretty stiff challenge from Daryl Waltrip who had won. He had won the previous four races. Yeah. So he was going for five. That's right. And darn near got it. Daryl got under Neil going down the backstretch with a couple of laps to go, but then Neil got back by him as they came to the white flag. and
2: With a flat tire.
0: With a flat tire. That's right. <laughs> and was able to hold him off by about a car length. Daryl said, on the last lap, I had a good line going into turn one, but Kel Yarborough was on my bumper. I couldn't get through turn one the way I wanted to. Also, the sun bothered me going into three. I knew I would have to try him outside, but the sun got to me, and I lost him. I couldn't tell where he was and how much I could come down on him. Consequently, I gave him too much room and lost my only chance to beat him. Daryl did finish second, and that moved him to 83 points ahead of Bobby Allison going into the season finale. So don't want to say that the championship was a done deal, but it was it, it was a pretty comfortable league. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's- certainly certainly more comfortable than two points like it was in nineteen seventy. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Not
2: a whole lot of sweat with this lead.
0: Kelly Yarbrough was behind Darrell, as he mentioned, but Kel Yarborough being Kel Yarborough, he wasn't just going to settle on third place. He was like a dog on a bone. <laughs> which I which I'm sure was a huge surprise since he was usually such a laid-back driver.
2: <laughs> Where did you get the words laid back driver associated with Kel Yarborough? <laughs>
0: kale said i felt i had them set up seriously i wasn't running for a second i felt i could take both of them on the last lap i knew they would get side by side and i was counting on getting by both of them coming off turn four so neil bonnet has a tire going down but then coming off turn four kale blows an engine <laughs> <laughs> <Sort> <laughs> so the leaders are having tire. all kinds of trouble Steve, there were a ton of driver and team announcements in this 28-page issue. There was Bobby and Diegard that we've already discussed. There was Benny Parsons signing to drive for Rainier Racing. And this story mentioned the fact that Richard Petty had been in talks with Rainier to leave Petty Enterprises and possibly bring STP along. But it sounded like STP wasn't interested in being an associate sponsor.
2: STP had a lifetime contract. Yeah with Richard. But we have talked about contracts earlier, but this this is different.
0: Ralph Salvino, who oversaw STP's racing program, said Richard is going to honor his contract with us as we knew he would. We never said his cars could not be built by someone other than Petty Enterprises personnel, but we would carry no associate sponsorships on the car and we won't in turn be an associate sponsor for another car with Richard driving. So, Steve, the thing that kind of jumped out to me was the fact that even in 1981, a couple of years before he actually did make the move, right? he was considering leaving Petty Enterprises and leaving it to Kyle. Yeah, I
2: think that's exactly what he was trying to do. But note what Ralph said. Richard did not say that he would bring STP along as an associate. Because he knew STP wouldn't do that. With that knowledge, I don't think Richard really wanted to challenge STP in any other role as the full sponsor. And therefore, it was best not to leave at that time.
0: Another story in this issue had J.D. Stacy signing on to sponsor Benny Parsons in Renier Racing. And Steve, this one. Harry Melling buys Elliott Racing Team. This is on the same page as a story about Ford coming back to the sport. And so on this one page of Grand National Scene, you have two stories that changed the face of NASCAR throughout the 1980s and that continues to impact NASCAR.
2: Ford coming back was naturally very, very good. But Harry Melling buying Elliott Racing and taking it over is, in the words of Bill Elliott, the best thing that ever happened to this team
0: that was a game changer
2: he he proved it he proved it
0: that was a huge story but then of course nobody knew the impact that would go on to have so that's what made this story special and kind of leap off the page then there was also a feature story in this issue about james hilton jr who everybody called tweety yeah tweety how about that (laughs) My dad gave me that name when I was small and I've had it for so long. I don't remember why he ever did it or where he got it, but there's one thing they don't call me and that's junior.
2: Tweety told me the same thing that he didn't know how he got the nickname. So I went to James one time and I said, why do you call your son Tweety? And he said, you know, I don't remember either where that came from, but I think it has something to do with the fact that he's weird.
0: Okay. All right, then. (laughs) Let's see. Sasquatch or Tweety? That'd be kind of a toss up. (laughs) Now, Tweety still lived at home with his parents, who also owned a farm that he had worked on at one time. That's how I got to meet our neighbors, but it was on unfriendly terms. The cattle would get out and end up on their property. So they'd call me up and tell me to come get them. It was really funny because they were scared of the cattle for no reason. They are really very tame and like people. Now, Steve, <laughs> I kind of had to wonder. They are really very tame and like people. Now, is he talking about the cattle or is he talking about the neighbors? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I believe the cattle <laughs> because the neighbors were afraid of the cattle.
0: <laughs> Sussed that out, did you? Okay, all right, okay. I got you. Then there was the time once there were some escaped convicts in the area. When I was at home, my dad wasn't around and I was in the kitchen and heard about it on the radio. I turned around and saw that my mother had let these three guys in the living room. I was just frozen, but what it was, it was snowing and their car was stuck in a ditch. They wanted me to tow them out.
2: (laughs) Well, that would okay, put it I think I I, I I believe Tweety had the right to be a little bit hesitant right there.
0: <laughs> and Steve, I do share this story on James Hilton Jr., Tweety Hilton. And back in April 2018, James and Tweety lost their lives in a traffic accident on the way home from an arca race at Talladega. So to see this story, I believe, is a tribute to Tweety. I, and think, I think that's very appropriate.
2: Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And uh, what, a, what a tragedy that was for racing for James and Tweedy to lose their life in that accident.
0: And Steve, finally, there was another feature in this issue about Dale Earnhardt leaving Richard Childress to go drive a Ford for Bud Moore. And Steve, most everybody that listens to this podcast, they know the details. They know about Rod Osterlin. They know that he sold the team to J.D. Stacy midway through the 1981 season. Dale drove for J.D. for a handful of races, but then he went to RCR, Richard Childress Racing. At the end of the day, Dale went winless and didn't win a pole position in 1981. And so he did decide to make a move, as you mentioned a few minutes ago. Dale said in this story, I see opportunities with Bud. To my thinking, he's a down-to-earth, hard-working man devoted to racing. It's what he does for a living. I also drive for a living. I don't do it for fun, and I don't do it part-time. I eat, sleep, and drink racing. It's better off that I join Bud, who is on the same wavelength as I am. My driving contract and salary are secondary to me in terms of my deal. The most important items are competitive cars, hardworking mechanics, In management
2: now richard chillers did tell dale that those things were things he needed and at that time he just couldn't provide them
0: after joining rcr dale finished ninth in his first race with the team at michigan so that was that was okay sure but then he crashed at bristol he finished sixth at darlington and richmond and 15th at dover But then he blew up at Martinsville. He finished fourth at North Wilkesboro. He had an ignition go out at Charlotte. He finished ninth at Rockingham. He blew an engine in Atlanta. And then he finished fourth at Riverside. So, Steve, that was definitely a roller coaster.
2: Oh, yes. By all means. And it wasn't the roller coaster ride Dale wanted.
0: Dale continued in this story. Being with Richard Childress this year has brought me down to earth. It's opened my eyes a little, and I think that it has been good for me. I was a little bit spoiled before. I had everything I needed or could want to be competitive. If I didn't have it, someone could get it for me. I just took it for granted that what I needed would be here. But with Richard, we've been on a budget. He's had to make money and the team work together. He's had to keep it all on a budget. And, Steve, that wasn't a criticism. I think that he no. and R.C. were friends, but he wasn't saying – exactly the results that he thought they needed.
2: Dale understood Richard's position very yeah. well. Very yeah. well. And when the opportunity to drive for Bud, which came with the Wrangler sponsorship, by the way, arose, Dale knew he had to take it and let Richard continue to expand his program.
0: I certainly don't think that there was any animosity. No. Dale concluded and said, RC has been hardworking and honest. He's done whatever needed to be done. He's given 200%. I say that joining him when we did was the best we could have done at the time. Dale went, and he drove for Bud for two years, and then he returned to Richard Childress Racing in 1984, and, and the, the rest is was is never history. the same.
2: Yeah, the rest is history.
0: Finally, there was a photo spread, as always, and Dale Cowart made <laughs> his Winston Cup debut at Atlanta. And he started 40th and finished 18th for car owner Haywood Grooms. Now, that may be the all-time greatest car owner name in all of NASCAR history. Haywood Grooms. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but in this issue, there is a picture of Delma Cowart's car in his Winston Cup debut. And then, Steve, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned Ronnie Sanders. And right here he is in the photo spread pushing his car out to qualify and he missed the deadline by less than a minute. Here on the Same Vault Podcast, we're all Ronnie Sanders all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, for fans of Bowman Gray Stadium and the Madhouse television show and my stint as the pace car driver at Bowman Gray Stadium.
2: <laughs> that wasn't necessary.
0: Oh, yeah, it is. That was a highlight of my career. Anyway, for fans of Bowman Gray Stadium, Junior Miller, was the Wednesday Cup Spotlight photo this week. So there's Junior Miller. And then in the in-focus photo at the back of the issue, there is a very hip-looking Jim France.
2: I bet you he had his sideburns, right? He did.
0: <laughs> I remember that. <laughs>
1: Hi, I'm Lake Speed. You're listening to the Scene Vault
0: Podcast. Steve, voting day for the NASCAR Hall of Fame is tomorrow. Do you know who you're going to vote for yet?
2: Well, I'm not saying. (laughs) I'm going to keep it under wraps, but it's different this year. It's different this year. We got three Guys that are going to make the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. Two of them uh, from let's call the modern day era, and one from the new class, the Pioneer class. That's why I played a pretty good role, and I'm going to be very interested to see what happens here.
0: Okay, now there's no pressure here, but I put up a poll on our YouTube community about the Pioneer class and who everybody would vote for, and these are the results, Steve. Herschel McGriff got 10% of the vote. Jake Elder got 13% of the vote. Ralph Moody got 21% of the vote. Red Farmer got 27% of the vote. And Banjo Matthews got 28% of uh-huh. the vote. Yesterday, they were tied at about 30% or whatever it was. But Red Farmer, 27%, Banjo Matthews, 28%.
2: I think it's going to come down to those two, to be very honest with you.
0: So which one are you going to vote for?
2: I'm not saying.
0: (sighs) (laughs) Okay. All right. That's cool. That's fine. We don't discuss politics here on the (laughs) same podcast. And that goes right up to and including the NASCAR hall of fame pioneer ballot, evidently. (laughs) It does. (laughs) How's it going on your basement? We had somebody come and look at it last week. And it's going to cost us about seventy-four hundred dollars. <laughs> with everything going on, if if water in our basement is the worst thing that we got to deal with, Pretty I, I think we'll be okay.